0: I'm Lindsay Wolver, and this is Food 52's Burnt Toast. It's 1986. A guy named Michael Levine has just written a song that's about to be one of the most popular food jingles of all time. Except the song he wrote was essentially created just to be thrown away. No one, not the agency, not Michael, expected it to ever see the light of day. I have a feeling you might know it.
1: Give me a break. Give me a break.
0: Break me off a piece of that.
1: Kit, kat,
0: bar. This jingle is pretty much stamped into collective memory, right there next to the Oscar Mayer song.
1: Oh, I'd love to be an Oscar Mayer wiener.
0: Or the band-aid jingle. And fun fact about that one, it's actually by Barry Manilow. I am stuck Or if you grew up in the 90s or watched an unhealthy amount of TV during that time, okay, yes, I am talking about myself, the Hot Pocket melody. Hot
1: Pocket! Hot Pocket.
0: Research papers list the Kit Kat jingle as one of the top 10 earworms of all time, which means actual scientists with real degrees have deemed this piece of music scientifically catchier than others. So basically, we are sorry. If this jingle is already stuck in your heads, it's about to get much worse. We tracked out Michael Levine, who's the composer of the jingle, and as the story goes, he was approached to do a cannon fodder campaign for Doyle Dane Bernbach, an agency working for Kit Kat. Here's Michael.
1: The advertising agency had created a campaign called Kit Kat Crazy in which they'd already spent a lot of money. They had uh, Dr. John and Phoebe Snow and some other celebrities singing versions of their demo. They were all set to go, but they as is often the case they needed a cannon fodder campaign something that was that they could throw away and he called me up look i only have a you know a very small amount of money can you do a demo this is a suicide mission you know we'll be very grateful for it for this and we'll remember you in the future and you know basically the answer to to success in this insane career is to always say yes
0: So essentially, they had a cool option, sung by cool people, and they had a nerd option. Michael led the nerds.
1: And so uh, I said yes, and I went to the meeting, and they had assigned a junior copywriter named Ken Schuldman, who had written up a couple pages. I picked out one line, give me a break, break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. And another line was, you could keep it to yourself, but it wouldn't be fair because that chocolate crispy taste is loved everywhere. And we discussed what kind of approach we wanted, which was sort of folksy and fun and kind of Zydeco-oriented, actually. Zydeco was very hot at the time.
0: For those of you who aren't familiar with Zydeco, here's what was playing in his head as he stepped into the elevator. All of those accordions and that dancey, upbeat feel is pretty classic for Zydeco. It's a mix of Creole music, blues, and R&B that came out of Louisiana in the early 20th century.
1: So I was kind of thinking about a little bit of, you know, a zydecal shuffle as I got into the elevator, which was on the third floor. And by the time I got out of the elevator, it was pretty much done. And so I went home and I went, okay, well, this is really more of a guitar kind of piece than a keyboard thing. And I... I uh, called up Ken, first person to ever hear the jingle. I played it for him over the phone. I gave him a preamble, and I said, Ken, um, I, I, I'm a really crappy guitar player, but I'm going to play you this on guitar because it feels like that's more in the spirit of this. But I, I really think this is working. Tell me what you think. And I played it down for him. And he said, I think you're right. You are a really crappy guitar player.
0: (laughs) Wait, I just want to back up for a second to be super clear. Are you saying that you wrote the whole Kit Kat jingle while you were on an elevator ride?
1: Yeah, it was a slow elevator.
0: So Michael has just written a jingle that's about to be a smash hit. And because there was such a small budget for this throwaway campaign, they couldn't really afford singers, at least not the ones that would compete with Dr. John and Phoebe Snow. So on that first take, Michael, his friend and fellow musician Chris McHale, and Chris's assistant sang the vocals themselves. They figured that if this thing actually gets made, they would just replace their voices.
1: Well, just to give you an idea of how much time it took to do that, um, the keyboard player was Gil Goldstein, fabulous keyboard player and arranger, went to, to go to the bathroom and he missed out on this. By the time he was back, we were done. So we recorded this just, just you know, just for the for shits and giggles, as they say. Um, you'll have to bleep that. We ended up using the version of the band, they were all musicians, but they weren't professional singers. They then tested it, expecting, of course, that it was going to die a horrible death. And it scored better than the campaign they were trying to sell to the client. And so they did the logical thing. They went to the client and said, there was something wrong with the test. We need to test it again. So they tested it again, and it scored even better. And at that point, they went, I guess we're buying, you know, this throwaway campaign after all. And they're still using it now, almost 30 years later, 28 years, I think it's been on the air. I'm not quite sure. I made a lot more money as a singer than I did as a composer on that job, As did, and the band members did much better as singers, except for Gil, who was in the bathroom the most expensive piss he ever took in his life. It's
0: hard to say why the test went so well, but Michael uses what Malcolm Gladwell calls the stickiness factor in his book, The Tipping Point, to help explain.
1: And one of the things he says is that most sticky things embody a contradiction. And so, give me a break, being a negative, and this happy tune were the contradiction. Not only that, the tune itself has a little bit of a contradiction. Give me a break, is this... uh, what's called a uh, major pentatonic. It's about as happy a tune as you can get. And then the second phrase is, give me a break. The that the, the gim is the flat seventh, which is the blue note. So it says, you know, there's a little bit of pain in the world. So it's a bit of a contradiction. And um, And those two contradictions, I think, are the essence of why it's sticky.
0: And did you have this all in your head in the elevator?
1: Um, no. <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty intuitive. Um, I did think about the the um, the major pentatonic because I wanted it to be really bright, and I understood intuitively Ken's sense of wanting to use a negative for a positive that that was going to be a hook. It wasn't until I met Red. Gladwell's book that I went, yeah, that's why it works. And if you think about it, so many of the the great sticky things, take the Mona Lisa as a great example. Is she smiling? Is she sort of not sure? Is she happy? Is she putting up with this painter? Is What's going on? And the answer is, we don't know. And, um, and Gladwell's theory, which I think is right, is that when you're not quite sure, when you kind of think you know something, but you're not quite sure, it'll drive you crazy until you work it out and you'll play it over and over again in your head. It's like if you can't remember somebody's name whose face you can see, you'll keep even though you know it doesn't work, you'll keep saying, Is it Bill? Is it Fred? Is it Joe? You know, and that's the essence of the stickiness is that because there is this contradiction, there's something that's not quite right about it. People go, Yeah, let I me mean, hear that again.
0: But Michael thinks the real genius of this jingle was what the copywriter did with an otherwise sarcastic phrase. Give me a break is something you normally say with an eye roll, like give me a literal break or leave me alone. But this song turned it positive.
1: Because he was playing off the fact that you break off the piece of the Kit Kat bar. Because Ken understood that the appeal of the Kit Kat bar was the fact that it was a social candy.
0: Early commercials reflect that. There's this popular ad from 1988, and in it, there are a bunch of big groups of people singing in unison while eating Kit Kats. You can actually hear Michael on the bridge. In this particular ad, we see construction workers, a few guys shooting hoops. I'm not totally sure how to explain this one, but there's a guy balancing a wheelbarrow on his nose. He looks jolly and motivated. There are a bunch of kids leaning out of school bus, a baseball team. That balancing guy makes a comeback, this time with a bicycle on his nose. All of them are waving Kit Kats in the air. In the fantasy world of this ad, this was a candy for the people. Except from Kit Kat's vantage point, they just launched an entire campaign on the premise that you don't have to buy your own piece of candy. Someone else could just share it with you.
1: The client was never, and to this day, is not, con- is doesn't like that idea because they think it means that they'll sell fewer Kit Kat bars not realizing that if if everybody shares it with each other they'll actually sell more and in in fact in the wake of the commercial airing they had to build a new Kit Kat factory it was so successful um, and and yet to this day nobody Hershey seems to understand that the essence of Kit Kat is sharing they still in all of their promotion you'll only ever see one person eating one Kit Kat bar you'll never see them breaking it off and sharing it which of course is how everybody actually eats the candy bar
0: a quick note about this there is actually a pretty popular full size Kit Kat called snap and share in the UK but Michael's right. We weren't able to find anything that explicitly encouraged sharing in American ads. Interpret that as you will. Did you ever, for even for one second, regret making a piece of music that people cannot get out of their heads?
1: Oh, you mean inflicting mass psychosis? Uh, I'm <laughs> yes. not really proud of that. Uh, <laughs> I, I must say that um, there was a period of time, you have to realize that that it was written in the waning days of jingles. And, um, it became very unchic to have jingles after that. I even had, uh, a different producer from the same agency tell me to take it off the reel, off my, my reel because, wow. um, it was losing me jobs. Uh, he told me because it was, it made people, um, uh, think that I was corny and old fashioned. And, um, And so I actually, I didn't take it off, but I put it at the end of my reel after all the hip stuff that won me, Cleo's, that was much hipper and nobody remembers now. The irony is that some of those jingles from that time, which haven't aired in 20 years, people can still sing and they're still selling the product. So it's due for some kind of revival when it becomes sufficiently old fashioned that it is no longer old fashioned, it becomes retro, it'll go back into style.
0: I get the theory of stickiness and the contradiction and the genius behind the negative turn positive. But to me, the Kit Kat jingle isn't one of the most popular jingles of all time because of those things. I think it's stamped into all of our memories because it's so human. It's a bunch of normal people singing a very simple melody. It's familiar. It sounds like your parents singing in the car, which you've heard a thousand times. Would you do us the honor of going out on a a bar of the jingle?
1: You know, sure. Um, Let me see. to, had to find a a key. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that good cat bar.
0: This episode of Burnt Toast was produced by me, Kenzie Wilbur, and Gabrielle Lewis. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. Music by the very talented Joshua Rule Dobson and a bunch of your lovely voices... Thank you for singing for us. Thanks also to Gabrielle's dad's barbershop quartet, who sang for us, too. They do not yet have a name, but if you have an idea, email us. or burnttoast at food52.com. We'll pass along all of your suggestions. We'll talk to you all next time. Thanks so much for listening. All month long, we're asking you to tell someone about a podcast they'll love. And It doesn't have to be this one, though that would be cool. Give your mom a recommendation, tell your uncle, grab your cousin's phone, and download something you know they'll like. Then tell us what you recommended with a hashtag tripod. Producer Gabrielle Lewis what podcast would you recommend? I would recommend Missing Richard Simmons. I love it. I I need to know where he is. What's going on? Oh, I do too. I've been telling everyone about that one. Also friend of the show, former producer of the show, Henry Malofsky is producing it. Yeah, former producer. We love Henry. And you can hear all about his beautiful teeth in one (laughs) choice episode. Episode two. It's really great. Um, I'm really looking forward to... The Return of Science Versus. Oh, okay. Um, It's actually coming back the same day as us. What's that one about? It's a show from Gimlet Media and basically they take common things in the world and they kind of debunk them and they try to prove them or disprove them with science. So there's a really great episode called The G-Spot and they explore whether or not scientifically it's a thing that actually exists or if it's just a figment of our sex brains. Thanks for the, the tripod recommendation tell us what you recommend with a hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y-P-O-D. Thanks for helping us spread the word.